Hello, and welcome back to the Europeans. I'm Mick Terreors, one of the people who bring you Are We Europe magazine. And don't worry, Katie and Dominic will be back soon, all tanned and rested. They better be. But here it is, the third and final installment of The Chain, a podcast series about the things Europeans love about each other's countries and cultures. It's a journey that's taken us everywhere, from Romania to Spain to Austria. Don't forget to check out the first episodes, by the way. And this time, we're hopping from Hungary to Germany to Russia, and then over the border to Norway. But let's start in Budapest. Philip Pollock is 23, he just finished university, and, in his words, is looking to see what life has to offer. His story is about a German cybersecurity book with a life of its own. This is not a story about 420 years misbehaving, but it is where it starts. It was summer, three years ago, and we were on a road trip, Daniel, Patent, Marzi, and me. He made up some higgity-piggity route from Hungary, driving through the Czech Republic and Germany, the Netherlands and Belgium. There were psychedelic adventures in Potsdam. We skinny-dipped in the canals of Bruges. The whole trip was a blast. After a while, all good things must come to an end. Our driver's parents needed the car back, and we needed to head home. Three of us were heading home anyway. Marzi had decided over breakfast that he was going to hitchhike to Portugal. It may have something to do with the pretty Portuguese woman he'd met in Prague. At any rate, we left him at the Belgian gas station and went on our way. It wasn't until we reached Germany that I decided Marzi's decision had been brilliant rather than stupid. Pull over, I shouted. I'm going to Norway. Why Norway? Well, why not? The only obstacle was money. But if I could get there for free, things might just work out. And rather surprisingly, they did. There were low points, sure. I stood for five hours in the pouring rain, trying to flag down a car. I also lived on bread and tap water. But the places I saw. You have to keep in mind that I come from a small, flat, landlocked country. So to drive past the sweeping vista of the Danish coast or the Scandinavian mountainside, there are no words for it. And then there were the brilliant people who took me in, who gave me shelter, who drove me for free. The Danish students who got me incredibly drunk the Belgians who agreed to drive me if I sing for them. But the one I really hit it off with was Alex. He was a tall, gentle guy in his late 40s. He picked me up on the German autobahn and said I could crash at his place in Hamburg. When I told him I was heading to Norway, he lit up. He spent plenty of time there in his 20s when he was serving with the German submarine force. When we got to his place, he put a record on, poured the whiskey, and started reminiscing about the good old days in the port of Stavanger. If you actually make it there, he said, would you do an old friend a favor and look up the Blue Mermaid and ask if Maria is still working there? Well, of course, he said. Tell me more. And so he did. Back in the 80s, the Blue Mermaid had been the sailor's favorite bar and Maria was the gorgeous bartender. 
She and Alex never had more than a fling, but drinking whiskey with a young hitchhiker was making him nostalgic. The next morning, he dropped me off at the gas station. He gave me a hug and a book for the long hours on the side of the road. Cheers. It was a book about cybersecurity, and I have no clue why he chose it as our parting gift, but he'd written his phone number on the front page so I could call him if I ever found Maria. So I know you're dying to ask, did I make it to the Blue Mermaid? Did I manage to reunite an old sailor with his lost Norwegian love? Uh, the short answer is no. It turned out the bar was long gone, and I phoned Alex to tell him the bad news. And that, I thought, was the end of it. After two incredible weeks on the road, I headed back to Budapest, and Alex's book came with me. I'd been dating Louise for a few months, and she plucked the book of the bookshelf one day. Could she borrow it? She asked. Sure, I said. Who knew cybersecurity was such a hot topic? After Louise and I broke up, I asked her for the book back. But she already passed it on to a friend who was on the way to Sweden. The book was heading north again. It's funny how some books have a life of their own. I have a copy of Women by Charles Bukowski that I keep lending to friends, and it's seen more of this world than I ever will. So far, it's always made it back to me. But Alex's cybersecurity book, I'm not sure about that one. God knows what it wants, but it clearly hates the South. It seems like cybersecurity is a hot topic indeed. I love this idea of books going around the world, traveling north, never looking back. I wonder which of my books I could send on a trip. Well, to be fair, my copy of Sally Rooney's Normal People has been passed along a few times. Let's see where that ends up. And our next story is also about books. We're staying in Germany now to hear from Viola Tönnissen, a teacher in Berlin. But back when our story starts, it wasn't Germany, it was West Germany. Here's Viola. On the shelves of my apartment are a line of books by Fyodor Dostoevsky, bound in red linen. They've survived everything, endless family quarrels and the war. My family is a complicated one. Generation after generation we fought each other, fathers disinheriting their sons. My own father used nail scissors to carefully cut my grandfather out of family photographs. You could still see grandpa's shape, but he was absent, like a negative. The Dostoevsky volumes were always oblivious to the family drama unfolding around them. They stood like rocks on the bookshelves. They came with us when we moved to West Berlin in the early 80s when I was a teenager. I'd grown up in cities of West Germany where our world felt complete and self-sufficient. West Berlin was fascinating to me, so harsh and divided. I loved that you could tune into radio stations from behind the Iron Curtain. I'd spend hours listening. Sound waves that came from just across the border, but also from a different universe. I didn't read any Dostoevsky myself until I was 15. I wasn't really that into books. 
I preferred strumming on my guitar. But my German teacher, a woman who I remember as a non-stop chain smoker, invited me to join a literature club. And that's when I read Crime and Punishment. I finally understood why generations of my family had been so addicted to Dostoevsky. His characters were as complicated as we were. After high school, I decided to study Russian and Eastern European history. I was more curious than ever about the hidden world behind the Iron Curtain. Three Soviet leaders had died in quick succession. From what we could tell, things were moving over there. In 1988, my studies took me to Leningrad, across the line that was usually close to West Germans like me. Leningrad, the city that Dostoevsky knew as St. Petersburg, his stories had been set in its gloomy backyards, its cheap attics. I spent the seemingly endless cold and snowy winter roaming the streets of Leningrad. I was there doing research for my master's thesis, which was, you guessed it, on Dostoevsky. But my main achievement during those four months was to collect 36 volumes of his work in Russian. I spent hours at antique bookshops digging them up one by one. Heavy tomes, the smell of Soviet bookbinding rising from their pages. Almost by accident, I had become the latest family member to fall under Dostoevsky's spell. I studied his work with an incredible intensity. He lived in me. He appeared in my dreams. When I handed in my final exam paper, it should have been a triumphant moment. I'd worked so hard for this. But that's when my father told me he hoped I would fail. His words cut like a knife. I still don't know why he said it. But our relationship never really recovered. Yet another generation falling victim to the family curse. I ended up working as a teacher in Moscow for five years. My son was born during this time. When I returned to Germany, Dostoevsky came with me. How could he not? I found myself back at my old university in Berlin, teaching a seminar on crime and punishment, the book that had started it all. When my father died, I had to clean out his apartment. That's when I found the family book collection. The old red volumes were mine now. These days, they sit on my own shelves, alongside the modern translations. And a few years ago, my son started his own journey with Dostoevsky, reading Crime and Punishment for the first time. He barely read it all before that. Now he's completely hooked. At kindergarten, my son was always the one trying to calm down arguments between the other children. 
He's 22 now. He's grown into a friendly, peace-loving young man. I like to think he's broken the family curse of endless quarreling. And when the time comes for the books to pass to him, I know he'll guard them like a treasure. Viola took us to Russia for her story. Usually that would mean we'd stay in Russia for the next one. We're going to cheat a bit now and hop across that little sliver of a land border to Norway. We're finishing the series at Norway's North Cape, at the very edge of Europe. Nina Lamparski is kind of an encapsulation of cross-borders herself. She's a journalist based in Paris, she's originally from Luxembourg, and her story starts with her Austrian grandmother, Mumi. My grandmother is the most stubborn person I know. Until the pandemic forced her to stay home, Mumi was still driving around her village near Salzburg in a rusty red car named Popeye. In my opinion, it's probably a good thing for everyone's safety that she's off the road, given that she's 95 now. But as usual, Mumi would strongly disagree. The thing is, Popeye is much more than just a means of getting from A to B. My grandmother always says that the day she's forced to stop driving will be the day her world starts to shrink and shrivel. She hates that thought. Mumi has always wanted her world to be as big as possible. My grandmother was a teenager in Vienna when World War II broke out. She always tells me how lucky I am to have grown up in an era of peace that's allowed me to see so much of the world. If I were young now, I'd become an explorer, she says. Maybe it wasn't a coincidence that she ended up marrying a man who worked for Austrian Airlines. They spent years traveling around Europe, the Middle East, even the United States. But... When my grandfather died in 1991, the television became Mumi's main window to the world. One day, during our weekly phone call, she told me about a documentary she'd seen about the North Cape in Norway, the very northern tip of Europe. Just imagine, she said. That's where Arctic pioneers begin their journey. I dream of going there. And that's how, ten years ago, I came to buy two tickets for a cruise to the North Cape, a surprise gift for Mumi's 85th birthday. I'd be lying if I said it was all smooth sailing. Sharing a small cabin with a cantankerous old lady is not exactly a relaxing holiday, but mostly it was extraordinary. We drink gin and tonics on deck at 1am in the midnight sun, 
watching the fjords silently glide past. Mumi would tell me about all the boyfriends she'd had before she met Grandad. There were quite a few, it turned out. And she told me about all the different jobs she'd had after the war. At one point, she worked in a morgue. Later, she got a job as a fashion model. She was too old to go on most of the excursions that had been organized as part of the cruise. But when we docked at our final destination, the island of Honigsvag, Mumi was ready. Together, we took the bus to the North Cape's visitor center. From there, it was still a fairly long walk to the monument that marks the final frontier with the Arctic Sea, right at the edge of the cliff. Far below us, Grey waves were crashing against the rocks. The winds were so strong that we had to bend almost double in order to move forward. My grandmother clung onto my arm for dear life. A man saw us struggling and offered to bring her back to the visitor center. Mumi nearly bit his head off. I didn't come all this way to sit indoors and drink hot chocolate, she snapped. I'm going up there, no matter what. And I have a photo to prove she did. Both of us with windswept hair, grinning into the camera like Cheshire cats, the giant globe-shaped monument right behind us. I recently asked her what her favorite memory was of that trip. Making it back alive, she said, and doing it all with you. We both know there'll be no more North Cape expeditions for us. I can't even say when I'll get to visit her next. But I have promised my gran that I'll take her out for a drive with Popeye as soon as possible. I hope I get to make good on that promise and keep Mumi's world from shrinking for a little bit longer. See the photo of Nina and Mumi at the North Cape, windswept hair and all. Check out the Europeans' websites. And that's it. I really hope you enjoyed hearing all these very, very European but personal stories, all crafted with care. We've had a blast making them. Don't forget to check out summerofsolidarity.eu for more brilliant European stories covering everything from Russian feminism to Romanian architecture. The Chain was a co-production by the Europeans and Are We Europe. Find us at areweeurope.com and europeanspodcast.com. This episode you heard from Philip Pollock, Viola Tönnissen, and Nina Lamparski. Mixing a sound design was by Kaz Laszlo, production by Dominic Kramer, and editing by Katie Lee. Music and sound effects came from Blue Dot Sessions and freesound.org. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, never break the chain.